All right. Would you take out your Bibles? We're going to get into God's Word this morning. Uh, Also take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. This is my most Christmas-looking shirt ever. It's actually my only one. So everything else will be non-Christmas moving on forward. So this is it for you. All right. I uh, entitled today's message, the dangers of self-obsession. And I want to, I want to talk about, uh, the ramifications of selfishness. I want to, I want to talk through a story that you may well look at and say, what in the world is that doing in the Bible? And why in the world are we talking about that during the holiday season? Right. And then you're going to find out by the end of today's message, there's glory to be had in this story and you're going to be moved. You're going to be transformed by the power of God's word. You will find out that this is exactly the message that we need to hear on the eve of the Christmas time. So I'm going to lead you through it. Some of it uh, I will be cleaning up. And by the time I get done with it, you're going to go, oh, that was awfully mellow in comparison to where Lance normally takes things. And that is because we obviously have friends and family in the place. We also have some kids with us. So we're going to do our best to kind of keep it uh, as as PG as possible. Um, but I do want to let you know that we are actually at the tail end. We are wrapping up a year of identity. We spent a whole year going through books of the Bible, talking about our identity in Christ, that we believe that Christianity is not so much learning how to do this and not do this, but allowing who we really are in Christ to emerge that every day we're discovering and unpacking who God is and what he did. And in light of that, who are we? And then we're going to be launching into a whole brand new season as we come around the end of this year. We are at the end of the identity year and we're closing up the Identity in Crisis series through the book of Judges. So we are in part 10. And if you want to look at that fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, let me just begin with a question and a comment. The message we are about to walk into, I believe, is one of the largest collections of selfish stories in the Bible. Everything that I'm about to read centers around selfishness. I believe that at the heart of all sin is selfishness. So here's the question for you, because I'm going to make this entire message personal. So let me ask you this. Who's the king of your life? Who's the king of your world? Now, just as you think about that, who's the one calling the shots? Who's the one that's setting the agenda? Who's the one that is putting in the priorities? Whose perspective are you following? Who's the king of your world? A lot of us would say that it's God. But does our life back that up? We'll get into that in a moment. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. If you are the king, if you are the king, then all serve you. If you are the king of your universe, if you are the king of your world, then therefore you're above everyone else. If God is the king of your world, then all mankind can be equal. But if you're the king of the world, everyone serves you. Selfishness is evil because it's anti-God. 
I know that in our culture, we have always highlighted things like self-confidence and we've highlighted, you know, self-attention. We use the word self and I, I think those things are good. Don't get me wrong. But when we call them that, we tend to think what we really need to do is just be in charge of ourselves. In some ways, we do need to master ourselves, but we are not the master. We are mastering ourselves underneath to be servants under the true king. Y'all understand what I'm saying? All right, here's why it's so important to talk about this this year. It's because who we believe ourselves to be in our identity really impacts how we treat other people. If we believe that we are, if we are insecure, we tend to lash out a lot more. If we are constantly clamoring to try to get attention, we'll shove people out of the way. The healthier we are inside, the healthier we are with each other. Y'all know that's true. Yeah. All right. Good. Two people do. So why is this terrible story in the Bible? Because if you remember, the last five chapters of Judges are out of order and they're merely put in there to tell how bad things have really become in the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was supposed to be the salt and light of the world. The nation of Israel was supposed to tell the whole world what God is like, but they pulled God out of their society. And when you pull God out of society, things fall apart. This story is in here to show you the depths that Israel had fallen. It's supposed to be a shocking, disruptive, and horrifying story. That's the point of writing it in here. Why? Because even if you're supposed to be the religious one, if you have removed God from your life, you become a monster. And the reason why it's so important to study it today is because it's always darkest before the morning. Y'all understand we're right on the precipice of celebrating Christmas. Christmas is that Jesus came. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. That was the prophecy of Jesus coming to earth. In other words, you need to see the darkness in order to see why you need more light. That when we continue to close our eyes, we don't see how dark it is. If we open our eyes and it is pitch black, we say, Lord, rescue us, save us. And a light begins to emerge. That's the story of Christmas. So before we get there, we need to talk about why God needed to come at all and why he needs to come back again. Amen? Amen. All right, let's get into this. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. Judges 19, verse 1. I'm going to read a little bit and then paraphrase, read a little bit and then paraphrase. So you can just follow along. Let's read together. Judges chapter 19, verse 1. I got to make a comment about the first line. It says, in those days when there was no king in Israel, stop. (laughs) In those days, meaning during the period of the judges, this story actually happens much earlier in the period of the judges. Israel was messed up from the beginning and it only got worse from here. In that period of time when Israel had no king, really? Because here's what they're going to say. Nobody was running the show, so there was chaos. But Israel had a king. Who's their king? God. But if a king is not honored as a king, the king is no king to the people. 
You know know what I mean? If there is no respect, if there is no honor, if there's no value put towards the leadership, then the leadership becomes ineffective. They had a king. The king was supposed to be God. But when you pull God out of it, when you disrespect and say, I don't need you anymore, when you little bit by little bit pick him out of this and pull him out of this and pull him out of that, it disrupts the entire fabric of society. I know that so many of us think that that we're really good people. We're not. You've never been in a world that God has not been a preserving influence of good. Anything good in this world is because of God. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me just say this. A king that is not honored is no king at all. Do you remember when Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then do not do what I say? Like, you're giving me all the lip service. There's just nothing behind it. The majority of all America calls themselves Christians. If that was truly the case, that everyone was sold out to the Lord and living for him every day, I think we would have a different nation. So is there a lot of talk? Yeah. Everybody likes the title. Nobody wants to live the life. And if you say that he's your Lord and you don't live it, he might not be your Lord. That's kind of the point, right? All right, so that's kind of how it starts out. And remember, we learned last week that the nation had fallen apart. They stopped honoring God's system. They stopped honoring the temple, the tabernacle. So now all of a sudden, the priest helpers, the religious guys, they didn't have a job. So they're all a mess. Here we go. A certain Levite or priestly helper, and he's supposed to be a good guy. He's supposed to be a Bible teacher, a worship leader. He's supposed to be an instructor. He's supposed to be a good guy. A certain Levite who didn't have a job anymore was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm sorry, what's that? He did what? Oh, he got a concubine. Now, lest I insult all of you that have a concubine. I don't know. I don't know how many of you have been collecting concubines, but I apologize in advance. Okay, so here's the deal. Y'all know what a concubine is? Let me tell you what a concubine is, and and I will try to be an adult about this. Here's what a concubine is. A concubine is a woman that a man wants something from but refuses to give her honor in return. A concubine is defined as a lesser wife. In other words, she is bound as a wife, but but he refuses to be kind and honor her and follow through and give her all the rights of a wife. So in other words, she is someone to be used. Are we all tracking on that? All right. How in the world does that happen? Where do we get into a world where there is a difference in equality between men and women. How do we get to a place where women are second-class citizens? And how in the world, if God created man and woman in his image and poured his personal image into both, how did we suddenly become in an unequal place? Is that what God wanted? No. So therefore, once we start shifting and making one less than, that makes the other one more than, and bad things are going to happen. Historically, have bad things happened to women? That's not okay with God. I just need you to know that. 
oh, well, he said there was a curse and, you know, and he, and he put in the head of the household. Trust me, the system God designed is mutual honor, health, protection, and provision. What God created will make everyone thrive in their design and they will love life. The problem is not God. The problem is selfish lives. You know what I mean? Oh, I think it's religion. It's not. You may pick out other religion, but don't say it's God's fault because that's incorrect. So somehow we have this discrepancy of the haves and have nots. We now have the guys have this, the women are this. And once you start doing that, it shifts from unequal humans to human and property. That's a very easy shift. And that's where we're at in the story. He's got a piece of property. So what, what happened? Here we go. Verse two. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. We don't know what that means. It probably just means she was unfaithful that she left the house. Now she was married to him legally, though she's not a wife. So she's not allowed to leave. Women didn't have any rights about a whole lot of stuff in that era. So she ran away. She went from him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some four months. Now, I don't think she was afraid. I think she was angry. And she bailed out and went to her dad because there's nowhere else for her to go. So she goes to her dad's house and stays there for four months. Well, now his property's gone. If you lost some property, you'd want to get it too. Now, if you're smart, you know that you get more with honey than vinegar. You all know what I'm saying? So look at the next line. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. That makes it sound like he's a super great guy. I'm going to suggest he's not. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. In other words, he was wealthy and he was determined. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came out with joy to meet him. Okay, so there's no fear here. When he walks up, she could have said, dad, that guy's a psycho. You need to protect me from him. She did not. She's like, hey, all right. I know we had our problems. It's nice to see you. She invites him into her dad's house. Now you can go, well, it was dysfunctional and messed up and she's codependent. Whatever. I have no idea. All I'm telling you is there wasn't a high level of fear. This guy came in, he probably played the charm game. And so she's like, hey, come on into my dad's house. The dad goes way over the top. Oh, it's so good to see you. I haven't seen you in such a long time. Man, come on in. I got a banquet for you. I got all kinds of stuff for you. As a matter of fact, he likes him way too much. And we don't know why. Because here's what's weird about it. So first of all, he immediately says, you guys got to stay with me for three days. He has them party, live it up and eat a ton in his house with his wealth for three days. They try to leave on the fourth day. He says, no, you got to stay and hang out with us on the fifth day. No, you got to stay and hang out with us. He keeps them around. Now, why are you so dominant? They're like, well, that's good hospitality. No, it's weird. If you're always forcing someone to stay at your house and they can't leave and you pressure them, that's odd. Why is he so into this guy? I'm going to suggest it's for selfish means. I think he's embarrassed that his daughter left him. I think that was a dishonor in his society and he wants to fix it. I think he's trying to make up for that. And I think he wants to be with his son-in-law because a son-in-law has money. 
And I don't think he wants to lose this guy. So he goes above and beyond. Here's what's super frustrating. If you look closely at the text, you'll realize the first time they have dinner that night, she's involved. Every time after that, it's just the guys mentioned. Why is that important? Because even her own dad does not respect her. Her dad is even using her to get something he wants. She has been completely sidelined. So all the men in her life consider her a second-class citizen. But God does not. Y'all hear that? It doesn't matter who you have have belittled. God did not belittle them. It doesn't matter what society has done to you. God hasn't done that to you. You have just as much honor and respect as a creation of God because God gets to determine your value and worth, yeah? All right, let's keep moving forward. And I'll just do a little paraphrase. So on the sixth day, the sixth day comes up and, and man, they are frustrated. He keeps going, no, you got to hang out with me. You got to hang out with me. You got to hang. Finally, they just go, dude, we're leaving. But it's now late in the day. So they go, they get their donkeys and everything and they take off. They go about 12 miles and they come up upon a city called Jebus. Later, it was changed to Jerusalem. So you're familiar with the city. But at this time, it's not owned by Israelites. It's in Israel. But foreigners run it. So the servant says, hey, boss, it's getting late. Can we just stop in here? And what is his reaction? No, absolutely not. I don't know why he suddenly had an English accident. No. (laughs) Dear boy. Right? Why? why? (laughs) That was weird. Okay. (laughs) No, I'm not going to stay there. Absolutely not. These guys are foreigners. I'm an Israelite. They're gross. I'm awesome. That kind of attitude, right? So he refuses and says, this is not a place that I'm going to stay. Let's go where I'm wanted and welcomed and appreciated. Let's go to our own people. So they go two and a half to four miles more into a city called Gibeah, which is in the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, there's 12 tribes. Each one of them are in Israel. They crossed into the Benjamin area and they're going to stay there. And it's late at night. But let me say one comment before I move forward. Why wouldn't he stay there? Was he afraid? I don't think so. He doesn't even know what was going on in there. As a matter of fact, he puts himself more in danger in the next city. Why wouldn't he stay there? Racism. There you go. Let's call it what it is. All throughout history, there's been racism. This is my people. You got your people. Anytime you have an us versus them, we have a problem. Anytime there is I'm different than you, therefore this means this, we got a problem. Well, what he's saying is they're foreigners. We don't hang out with them. I don't want to be in their town. doesn't matter how much I need them. I would rather die than hang around them. That is a deep-seated racism. Remember, it was still going on in Jesus' day as well. Do you remember that in Israel, there was the Jews and then the Samaritans? You remember that? The Samaritans were a little group of half-Jews that were in the middle of all of Israel, which I think is ironic that God put them in the middle. God always puts the trouble spot in the middle. That's why Israel's in the Middle East. Do you all understand what I'm saying? As he's agitating all the time going, you've got to look at what's wrong here. You do not get just ignore it. So if you have a problem and it keeps showing up in the middle of your eyes, <laughs> that's what God's doing to you. He's just pointing it out and pointing it out and pointing it out. I can't get away from it. I know because God's moving it around. 
just to put it in front of you, the Samaritans were arguing with the Jews. They hated each other. And as a matter of fact, when the Jews found out Jesus was going to minister to the Samaritans, they got so mad at him. Forget you. Now you're just going to hang out with them. I thought you were our people. Then you find out when he's in Samaria, he was going to go back to Jerusalem, to the Jewish place. So the Samaritans said, fine, leave. We don't want you anyway. If you're going to hang out with those people. Both groups rejected Jesus because he was going to hang out with someone that was not in their group. Do you realize that it's possible that racism ruins your walk with God? You're going to miss Jesus because your horizontal relationships affect your vertical relationship with God. You know that. Okay. I don't got anything against those people. Is that that your attitude? I don't got anything against those people. Do you understand that you don't need to be angry to be a monster? You can just think it's normal. That here's the funny thing about monsters. When monsters are born into a monster family and everybody's a monster around them, you don't know you're a monster. Huh, that's weird. Okay, let's move on. I'm sure there's no message in there. So they're hanging out and it's really late and they're waiting because there was no hotel. So they decided to stay the way that it always worked is you'd go and you'd stay in the city square and then someone was supposed to take you home. I know that sounds weird to us, but if you don't have anywhere else to stay, foreigners would come in and they'd hang out in the town square and you had a mandate to be hospitable. You bring them into your house, you had a little extra part on your house, and you take care of them. Well, nobody was taking them in. The guy has donkeys and all this stuff, which means he doesn't need your money. He can sustain himself. He's got food for his donkeys. He's got all kinds of money. He doesn't need anything from you. He just needs a place to stay. But everyone was so self-absorbed, they didn't bother. Why? Because they had their own lives going on. They don't need to take any time to care for anybody else. And you can tell something's wrong with the city. It may be Jewish, but it's messed up getting super late all of a sudden this old man comes in from work from the field he comes in and he goes hey what are you guys doing here they're like well nobody's taking us in well where are you from Ephraim really me too I'm just I just got you know I just got a place here I'm not from here but I work here hey you guys need to come hang out with me well sir you know what we're not going to be a problem hey don't even worry about it doesn't matter what it costs I got you so they go home to his house and by the end of that story they're all hanging out and everything's good she's eaten he's eaten the servants eaten everybody's good and it sure seems like things are going well and no it's not here we go now i have decided to read this passage as opposed to paraphrase this passage because i pretend like that makes it more clinical and less heavy here we go as uh, we're in verse 22 if you want to follow along As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. They said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. That is in a biblical no sense. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. And you go, oh, good. He's standing up for him. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. 
the way the story goes is while they're deliberating, the Levite grabs his concubine, shoves her out the door, shuts it, and locks it. By morning, she's dead on the door, doorstep. Okay, now that is perhaps one of the most heinous stories in the Bible. You go, I know this story. I swear I've heard this before. You have. Sodom and Gomorrah. You go, really? There's two of them? Oh, I'm sure there's hundreds. There's only two recorded. Here's why it's so important to know that. In Hebrew, not only did the stories carry the same amount of figures, but they're the same number of words in the Hebrew. It's supposed to be a duplicate story. Why? Because Israel used to always say those wicked, terrible Sodom and Gomorrah people, they're the bad guys. And God goes, it's in your backyard. You have become just like them. So it's on purpose. Y'all see what I'm saying? He brings it in. This horrible event happens. And just so you know how much of a jerk these guys are in the morning, the Levites ready to go. And by the way, he went to bed when he gets up in the morning, he opens the door. She's dead on the threshold. He kicks her and says, get up. But she can't cause she's dead. You see, when you allow yourself to be better than other people, then their care doesn't have to match yours. Has there ever been times in history when people groups have been mistreated? Because they're not as good as the dominant group. You go, man, Lance, you're really pushing on this stuff an awful lot. Dude, we're not doing anything like this. You sure? The reason why stories like this are in the Bible is to give you a shocking example to get your attention. And then you're supposed to back up and say, but what form of this dwells in my mind? So let's play that game. So what is it that is creating an us versus them in your world? Remember, you don't have to be mad to be a monster. Let's play this game. Is it that you and your friends are the intelligent ones and everybody else is stupid? Is it that you're the beautiful ones? And everyone else is ugly and less. Is it that you're more educated? Is it that you're more famous? Is it that you're the right skin color? Is it that you're, you understand what I'm saying? We keep playing this game and we love to put ourselves in categories as long as our category is a little better than someone else's category. I mean, we do it all over the dating world. Man, that girl, she's out of my league. Or, oh, that guy, he would never. And we put people in classifications as if there's different types of humans. There's not. It's just human. And here's the deal. In the Bridgeway house, I need you to understand this. And I keep trying to reset it as your pastor. I'm with you. There's no like, oh, there's super saints and then there's other people. That's not true. We're all in this together, right? All right. And then same thing when you look out in society and it becomes this weird, creepy, well, we're the church and they're the world and, and they're lost and dying and, and we're the ones that are victors and we're great. You're still creating an us and them. How about just looking out in the world and saying, man, you're just like me and I want you to have the blessings I have. So I'm going to love you and treat you with honor and equality. I think that's what God's getting to. I think that injustice is a big deal to God. 
and he reacts off it. All right, so let's move forward. So this guy does what everybody, what you would do if this situation happened. Uh, He picks up her body, goes home, cuts it into 12 pieces and mails it out to all the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that's the normal thing, right? Trust me, UPS was shocked that day. Hey, guys, why is this package dripping? It's kind of one of those weird things. So inside each package was a note that said, all of Israel leadership and soldiers meet at Mizpah on this day. If you do not, it's under penalty of death. Now, if you get a body part and a note like that, you're probably going to show up. Yeah. So everyone was motivated. So at Mizpah, a gathering of 400,000 soldiers and all the leaders of Israel gather together and they said, we need to know what's going on. They call the Levite forward and said, dude, tell us the story again. What went down? He tells them the whole story. And at the end, he says, what are you going to do about it? They look at each other and they said, we'll kill the bad guys. He said, all right, that's what I hope for. That was his whole point. Get everybody motivated. Now, nobody said this was God's idea. Right now, we just have a bunch of people trying to sort it out. So they're going to go in and kill the bad guys. So they get a contingent who goes down and says to the leaders of Benjamin, remember, every tribe is independent, even though they're one nation. They go to Benjamin and they said, hey, real quick. Hey, guys, come here for a second. You got some creepy dudes in your place. We need to kill them. So if you could just hand them over, that'd be great. Benjamin says, no, I'm sorry. Did you say no? No. Why? Cause you're not the boss of us. We're the boss of us. You don't get to tell us what to do. I don't care what our guys did. You don't get to walk in here and take some of our men. Yeah, but they're messed up. I don't care who they are. You do not tell us what to do. And you see a clash of pride. Pride has always been excellent, right? No, it hasn't causes a lot of wars. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So Benjamin says, let's do this. They line up for battle and you're going, Oh no. Why would you even do that? Benjamin, by the way, has 26,700 soldiers. Israel has 400,000. So these guys are lining up to battle against overwhelming odds. Why? Because they are tough little ones. (laughs) These they're, they're like a whole team of special ops. It even says they have 700 guys that are special ops on their team that can use a sling and hit a hair without missing. I mean, this is like super locked and loaded over the top soldiers. So they all line up 26,700. They're going to go against 400,000. And Israel said, well, that's going to be a complete destruction. Here's what we'll do. We'll all fight them one at a time as a tribe. So they go to God and say, hey, who should go first? God's like, this is a whole thing is a stupid idea. Whatever. Judah, Judah goes first. And they're like, all right, cool. Judah, you ready? Yeah, you get, I don't know, thousands and thousands. You go get them first. Judah goes, fights Benjamin, loses, loses 22,000 of their team. They go back and cry to God, God, we lost that one. I don't know if you saw that. Should we go again? He said, absolutely. They go and they lose again, another 18,000. They've now lost 30,000 soldiers. You know how many Benjamins lost? 600. I told you, these are tough guys. They're not messing around. That's why they think they can bully their way. Let me ask you, why is Israel losing a war that God allowed? Hmm. 
First of all, it wasn't, I don't think it was God's idea, but I'll tell you this. Here's what we don't want to hear. We always love to put people in categories of monsters and heroes. What if it's mixed? Because here's the interesting thing. The whole nation was corrupt. Just because this sin was more wicked doesn't mean God didn't need to do house cleaning all the way across the nation. What we like to do is put this sin in this category and say, God, you need to judge that sin. When he turns around and looks at ours and says, what about yours? Hmm. So this time they say, hey, God, are we supposed to go again? Because this isn't working. And he says, yep, go again. This time you'll win. They're like, oh, good. Which, by the way, why didn't they ask that question in the first place? Anyway. So God said, we're going to switch up our strategy. I want you to surround the city. And then I want you to look like you're going to lose again. And you start backing up, right? And they start attacking you. You lure them out of the city, surround around back, burn the city down, you'll win. So they do that. And they chase down all of the Benjaminite soldiers. And they kill all of them, but 600 600 of them wall up into a cave fortress and they can't even get them out for four months. But they've, they've decimated, burned all the cities in Benjamin, decimated the entire tribe down to 600 men. That's pretty hardcore, right? Well, now what are you going to do? So they all gather in a place called Shiloh and they're all, Oh God, what happened here? Why would you let this happen? Why would I let this happen? Man, why do you think this is my problem? I didn't start this. You're the one that wants nothing to do with me. You kick me out of every decision. You end up in a bad place and it's my fault. You're the one that told me you didn't want me as your king. You're the one that told me you didn't want to do what I said. You're the one that told me you didn't care about my religious system. You're the one that constantly said, I know it's all about me. It's all about me. It's all about me. Now you're blaming me for what you're doing. Stop thinking it's my fault. Y'all, this is a series of bad decisions on your side. Will I come in and step in out of kindness and grace and mercy? Yes, but don't, don't make a mistake and think it's my fault. While they're having this discussion, one of the guys is like, hey, hey, put God on hold. Put God on hold real quick, real quick. Mute. You guys have an idea. Oh, what's your idea? You know what? We got to get wives for these guys, right? And we all promised that we wouldn't give any of our girls to them to get married, right? We promised that before God. You remember that? Yep, absolutely. Hey, do you remember this? Remember when we got that bloody package? Remember how it had a little announcement in it and it said, if you don't show up, it's under penalty of death? Who didn't show up? Uh, I don't know. What are you talking? Jabesh Gilead, that whole clan didn't show up. What are you saying, Rick? He's Rick. That's his name. What? what are you saying, Rick? Well, here's what I'm telling you. I'm telling you is I bet they have some wives there. Oh, I get where you're going. I get where you're going. All right, all right. They bring in 12,000 men, go in and decimate the city. And they find 400 virgin young ladies in that city and they kill everybody else. Well, that was a great plan. They then take the 400 young girls, go up to the Benjaminite guys and say, hey, sorry about completely wrecking your tribe here. And they hand the girls over. Does this not sound like the worst day ever? The girls are like, oh, good. <laughs> great. I got a husband. So they hand him over. And guess what Benjamin says? Uh, appreciate that. However, there's 600 of us. You brought us 400. You're 200 shy. 
Oh, that's a great point. Where are we going to get 200 more? All right, come on, Rick, you got to think of a new plan, new plan, new plan. Come on. So Rick's like, hey, I got another plan. Okay, we all know that there's this big party, right? Like all the young girls have one huge party right in Shiloh. You know what I'm talking about where they all come and it's like no guys allowed and they all kind of hang out together and they're all dancing and having fun. You remember that? Okay, so here's what I'm suggesting. Let the other 200 guys watch the party from the bushes lie in ambush and when they see one they like run out quote snatch them a wife and run away with her yeah that's the plan so they do it the end that's the book of judges what the heck what what kind of story is that how is that an ending Here's the point of all this. What does it have to do with us? It has to do with us in every way. You see, the closing line is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. If that has been you up to this point, that you don't call yourself a monster, but your life is only about you, welcome to your story. I told you it needed to be darkest before the morning. I told you that Jesus came to bring a great light. Do you realize that the following book, what's the book after Judges? Ruth. Do you realize that Ruth is the exact same period as the Judges? Does it go the same way? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, in a full study of the Bible, I can only think of a few, on one hand, really good men. On the top of the list is a guy named Boaz. And he's in the book of Ruth. During this same era, there was a godly man. And he was kind to women. He was honoring to women. He sacrificed for his wife. He made sure that she was protected. He made sure that she was held up in high esteem in society's eyes. And you have a prince of a man. You see, not everybody has to be in darkness. Good men, good women need to rise up in the time of darkness and show us what it looks like to be a good guy. That's us. We are that generation. We are those people. We are the salt and light. And it can't be about us anymore. What we need is salvation from selfishness. Could I have the prayer team come on up here as we close out? I know that for most of us in this room, in college, you were told that mankind is basically good. They lied to you. How do we know that? Because by definition... Human nature is selfish. You go, that's not true. There's all kinds of areas in the world that are not Christian. They're atheists and they do nice nice things. Oh, you're assuming that God isn't there. You don't know a world without God. Every nation on earth came from a place where God talked personally with his people. The whole world has a God hangover. The only good in this world is God. 
So as much as we think we can create good without God, we can't. Mankind is not fixing the problems. God does. And Jesus was so tired of pain. He was so tired of hurt. He was so tired of what we do to each other that he said, I can't stand it anymore. I got to fix it. And do you understand that he's also tired of how much we hurt ourselves? Would you agree that our greatest challenge in life is us? Right? We need to be saved from us. And that's what I think today is for. So here's what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And if God is moving on your heart and he's just saying, hey, you know what, kid? I know that you're moral. I know that you're nice. I know that you're kind. I know that you work hard. But you do know that you don't have me. You do know that everything you do is really about you. I want to be your savior and you're in my seat. If you need to get out of your seat, which is the throne room of your world, and put Jesus in there, let's pray. After that, the altar is open, and I'm going to pray that this team is anointed to continue to pray with you afterwards if you need it. Let's pray together as a family. Heavenly Father, we say yes to you. We say yes to everything that you say. That we know, Lord, through our lives, we have been so distracted by ourselves. We keep thinking that every day is for us to tackle. Every day is for us to advance our kingdom and our agenda. We keep thinking that everything is an opportunity for us to get more. And Lord, it's just simply wrong. We've kind of made a mess of things that internally were chaotic. We can't save ourselves. We have no plan for the afterlife. We don't have any understanding about what meaning is. And so, Lord, right here, right now, we confess we need not just a savior, but a king. And so in the quietness of this room, in the quietness of our spirit, we cry out to you and say, God, save us from ourselves. Save us from selfishness. Save us from self-obsession. Save us from not looking at you rightly. Forgive us, God, and allow your grace to flow. Allow your forgiveness to flow. Lord, just begin to change us from the inside out. Begin to move in this room and rescue and rescue and rescue and heal and knit up all the parts that we are wounded. So that, Lord, we might be free, we might be healthy, we might be strong. We might be everything that you designed us to be. Jesus, you came into this world to shine the light. You came into this world for beautiful hope. You came in this world to transform us. And today we say, yes, make it so for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.